Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And we are virtually real. We are in virtual reality. And I see a virtual Tom and a virtual <laughs> Glenn. And I'm sure they see a virtual me. But uh, we're glad to be together in this way uh, nonetheless. And we're glad that you're with us and listening to today's show. This is the Theology Podcast, as I noted. And uh, I am C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor serving a church in Vancouver, Washington, in the, and that's in the Pacific Northwest. And I've written a few things, including a book on Tom Bombadil, which is now available. And uh, I encourage you to check that out. But enough about me. How about you, Tom? Uh, Tom Price. Uh, I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. And I'm on the Atlantic Northeast. (laughs) That's my. All right. Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University. That means I'm retired. Um, I'm also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Great stuff. Anyway, it's your day, Glenn, but before you begin, I wanted to, to do something that I think would be fun to do going forward, and that is shout out to a country that uh, we know has listeners to the Theology Podcast. So one of the things that's been a marvelous uh, sort of delight for us is discovering that we have listeners all over the world. And uh, the reason we, we know this is because the podcast service we use tells us so. It tells us, you know, the percentage of our audience in this place or that place. So it occurred to me, we could uh, begin each show by kind of shouting out to a country and saying, you know, hey, let us know uh, that you're there. Uh, So the country that occurred to me to begin with is Brazil. We have a number of people who listen to us in the country uh, there uh, in Brazil, and we're very delighted to have you with us. Go to the go to our website if if you if you can, uh, the theologypodcast.com, and go to the contact page there, and then just send us a note and tell us, yeah, I'm in Brazil and uh, I listen to you, and uh, this is where I live and this is who I am, and uh, uh, what are we going to do with that? Probably nothing, <laughs> but it's just fun to know that there are actually people who listen to us and can respond. But anyway. Next week, we'll have another country, and we'll kind of work our way around the globe this way. Yeah, just note, we do not send spam. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We're not, we're not big into fundraisers or anything like that. We're, we're, we're pretty low-tech, uh, <laughs> even though we, you, you, you access our show through the Internet. Anyway, so today's your day, Glenn. What are we talking about? Well, I thought we'd revisit a topic we've talked about before, given the date that this is going to be broadcast. I thought it would be good to uh, debunk some of the nonsense that goes around about Christmas. So there are a lot of different uh, parts to this, but let's just start off with uh, one of my personal favorites, the entire Jesus myth thing. Uh, The Jesus myth says that Jesus did not actually live. He was never a historical person and that all of this stuff from Christianity is nothing more than an amalgamation of uh, pagan legends of dying and rising gods that are just all sort of pulled together, and uh, that's what creates Christianity. 
So, for example, you'll have people tell you that uh, Horace was born on December 25th, uh, that he was born of a virgin, that he was crucified, died, and resurrected, or that Mithras was born also on December 25th, and he had 12 apostles, and he gave his body and blood to them to eat, and he was crucified, died, and resurrected. Or uh, Balder in Norse mythology was, um, you know, he, well, he's a dying and rising god as well. And in that myth, he is he's uh, actually murdered. And then uh, he's going to come back at the uh, after Ragnarok, after the, the end of the world to inaugurate the new age. And this is obviously what's going on with with Jesus and all of that. And all I can say about this is that it's essentially total nonsense. <laughs> um, it was uh, most of this stuff was developed in the 19th century, um, invented out of whole cloth by a guy, I believe his name was Mackey. And uh, he basically just made up a bunch of things. Let's start with Horace. Um, Horace's mother was a goddess who was married to a guy named Osiris, another god. Um, that really raises the question of her being a virgin at all, but she's certainly not a virgin woman. We have no date for Horus's birth in any of the Egyptian sources. He was not crucified. In fact, when the Horus myths were created, crucifixion didn't even exist. Um, yeah, no, it doesn't work. Um, Mithras. Mithras was born not of a virgin, but of a rock. Uh, I think we can, I think we can assume the rock was a virgin. But I don't think that's quite what they had in mind. Um, he did not have 12 followers. He had two. He did invite the sun god to a feast, but it was a feast of a bull that he had killed, this great monstrous bull, which is the center of the Mithras legend. Um, he was not crucified. He just at one point simply decided that he was through with being immortal and he ascended uh, to become a god. That's about the only thing that he has in common. Uh, the other thing, by the way, about Mithras is all of our sources of, of Mithras post-state Christianity. Hmm. So if there's influence, it's going to be really hard to argue that the later source influenced the earlier one. Time doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. uh, then we get to Balder. This is probably the biggest stretch in a lot of ways, but uh, it's worth noting that all of the legends that or the myths that we have surrounding Balder were recorded by Christians, and there were nearly 200 popes between Jesus's day and the day that the Balder myths were recorded. Huh. We got a problem there, you know, chronologically, right. aside from the fact that the parallels are, are pretty close to non-existent. The closest that, the closest that they can get is Balder is depicted as having white hair, and the, the resurrected Christ also has right, white hair in Revelation. That's about the extent of it. <laughs> okay, so the but but more importantly than all of this, um, you know, so the, all of this stuff about Christmas being just sort of a rip off of pagan legends is nonsense. But more importantly than all of this is the key point that actually this is one of the things that Jordan Peterson um, has really highlighted, and C.S. Lewis did as well. All of these stories of the gods occur in what I would refer to as God time. Hmm. They don't occur in historical time. The gospel writers are very careful to situate Jesus in a specific place and time, right. all the way down to naming Quirinius as the governor of Syria. Yeah. 
Right. And that that creates something that is qualitatively different. There's no serious historian that actually denies that Jesus existed. They all agree on that. They all agree he was crucified. They don't agree on much else. But they all agree on that much because the fact of the matter is that if you argue the way that Jesus mythicists argue, you have to dismiss all ancient history. It all has to disappear because it does not meet the standard of proof that's required. Now, Jordan Peterson makes an interesting move at this point, which echoes, again, very closely what, CS, what happened with C.S. Lewis. In Lewis's conversion, one of the key points is that when J.R.R. Tolkien told him that, yes, the gospel is a myth, but unlike the other myths of the dying and rising gods, the corn gods, and all of that, this myth actually happened. It was a true myth. Right. And the way Jordan Peterson puts this He says it's where the world of fact or the world of history and the world of narrative, by which he means essentially the same thing as myth for Lewis. These two things converge at that point. And he says, I'm surprised to say this, but I actually believe in Jesus. Right. Um, Because of this uh, movement away from God time and just mythological time into History. This is where the two things, the world of fact and the world of meaning, converge in Christ. Right. Okay, so that 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 that's a bit on the Jesus myth. Do you guys have any comments here? Well, I was just curious. I, I, it's probably take us to it in such a wrong direction, but I mean, I know he 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 in particular is a kind of Jung, Jungian who, um, you know, Jung. If I if I recall, and it's been many years, I'm literally since I studied psychology in college. But if I recall, re, remember him right he kind of he he took that whole mythological world as something basically about principles of our psychology and there there is a sort of memory going on in our psychology that goes back to these these fundamental types and archetypes and figures to which i I think peterson's on to, to to something where this this kind of world starts to become realized as well with christ but again that that's probably another show (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, but but I think I think it fits directly in here in that mm-hmm. you're right. Uh, uh, Peterson is Jungian, and what what the thing that he is finding so absolutely, as he put it, terrifying is the idea that the Jungian archetypes might actually emerge, or the narrative, as he puts it, might actually intersect physical reality. It might intersect historical reality, the physical world, all of these kinds of things. Um, and his comment actually was really interesting. He says he finds it terrifying because he does not know what it would mean for anybody. And this is a challenge, I think, to all of us to actually believe that the narrative and the history have coalesced. Right. He doesn't know. Well, he doesn't know what that would do to you if you actually truly believed it. But he's finding himself moving in that direction. Yeah, I think. Uh this uh, move from the sort of psychological archetypes to uh, fundamental realities um, is not as big a leap as many think, I think many assume it to be. Um, If these things are fundamentally sort of sort of woven into our psychology, then, um, basically we're left with two alternatives it seems to me anyway either we are 
as a as a race as human beings deluded <laughs> or, or there's something that we've perceived as a race meaning the human race that's real maybe we don't fully uh understand it or uh have worked it all out or, or any of that kind of stuff but that seems to me the, the those are the options mm. yeah uh I, I think you're right. I think that that we we don't tend to think in those terms because, again, in our culture, we're we're stuck with facts and we don't think about meaning much. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, Tom, were you going to say something there? Well, I was just going to say it's interesting. It's sort of an uh, Jung on this level of archetypes and types is a kind of immanentizing of of you know old Platonic forms. And I was just thinking, you know, in, in in Plato's world and in the early church dealing with types and archetypes and and prototypes. But one of the things I think that would have been a larger leap would have been the ancient world who had to say that the the infinite source of all things. You know, and in, in, in some of the, that um, that philosophy at the time is we're talking being beyond being, you know, the super essential, whatever, could become human being. I mean, that was foolishness to the Greeks. Um, and so in, in a way, it's, it's foolishness to the empiricists. But on the other hand, there is this hangover or not hangover. There's a re-description of those kind of types in a psychological way that also finds a kind of puzzlement and shock. And I think seeing Jordan Peterson kind of shocked by it gives you a hint at what, what the gospel going into the ancient Hellenic world would have, would have looked like in, in a way. There's, there's a fascinating shock going on here. It's like the philosophers who wanted to hear Paul speak because they were so puzzled by this strange teaching. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's, it, I think it's something that, you know, Platonism addresses in, in the in the sort of divine madness. If there if there really is a larger reality that uh, is outside the cave, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, when we go outside the cave, there's not there's very little in the inside the cave that prepares us for the agoraphobia yeah. that we encounter or, or we <laughs> we find ourselves sort of uh, sort of plunged into or sort of experiencing when we get out of the cave. Um, and then, of course, what happens to the person who goes back into the cave to announce the news to the to the people who are still chained? Well, they don't welcome him gladly. They they don't like the message. That's probably but what all that. That's probably what Peterson gets. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Not far right. off, actually. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So, 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 tell us some more, Glenn. That that's one <laughs> problem or one misconstrual. Uh, what, what are some others? <laughs> okay. So we we start with the idea that Jesus himself is a pagan myth. We then go to Christmas as being a pagan celebration that's been usurped by Christianity. <laughs> And the, the way we get here is actually through a couple of things. The, the fact that the date for Christmas was set for December 25th, which in the Roman calendar was the solstice, um, connects it to the cult of Sol, Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, because this is the day at which he's at his, his lowest ebb, but he's turning around and coming back. Um, claims of an association with Mithras, which are, are a bit problematic, uh, but also Saturnalia, which was right around this time of year as well. So what do we do with that? Well, it turns out that 
somewhere around the Carolingian era, eighth, ninth century, um, there were theologians who said that the date for Christmas was set to correspond to Saturnalia. You know, that it was a way of the Christians giving a rival holiday for the pagans. And there were all kinds of things that were associated with this. There were garlands and wreaths and things like that, which it's worth noting the early church banned because they were too pagan. They actually banned candles as well. So the idea of a candlelight service would have been out there because candles were used in pagan pagan ceremonies. Uh, presumably, they just have lit them with oil lamps if they were around at night. Okay, so what do we do with this? I mean, we've got people who are saying as early as, call it roughly 800 AD, we've got people saying that that this is, um, um, you know, Saturnalia uh, revisited. The, pr- the problem with that is that 800 AD is, is going pretty far back in time, but it's still 500 or so years after the date of Christmas was set. So it would be sort of like saying taking somebody today who had no sources and using it to analyze something that was going on in Luther's day without any explanation of what Luther was doing. We got a 500-year gap or so. Okay, so so it turns out that when you look at the early church, they were singularly uninterested in when Jesus was born. So if you read Athanasius' On the Incarnation, which we did a show on a year ago, and if you haven't read On the Incarnation, you need to turn off the podcast, I'll never say that again. Turn it <laughs> off and go read it. Um, actually, actually, you 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 can wait. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, yeah, all right. Wait. So, so um, what what you find in on the incarnation is not what you would expect. You think that something on the incarnation would be talking about Bethlehem. It doesn't. It talks mm-hmm. about Jerusalem. Yeah. It talks about the crucifixion. Yeah. The whole thing is about why Jesus was why the incarnation even happened, why Jesus came. And the focus is not on his birth, but on his death and resurrection. It's all about redemption and salvation, because ultimately that is the final purpose of the incarnation. He doesn't get into anything else that we would think of when we talk about the incarnation. That was the attitude of the early church. They really weren't that interested in when he was born. They were really focused in on his death and resurrection. Sometime in the second, third century, they began to start discussing when it might be. Some people suggested in May. Some people suggested other times. Ultimately, December 25th was decided upon as the date that we would celebrate the Feast of the Nativity, not because of Saturnalia, but because of Jewish thought. And ultimately, the date of Christmas is set by the date of the crucifixion. So the, the, in, in translating from 14th Nisan in the Jewish lunar calendar to the Latin solar calendar, they ultimately decided you know, there's, there's, some, this, there's some different ways of doing this. But the majority view was it comes to roughly March 25th. And within Jewish thought, it was believed that important events occurred on the same date. So the world was created in the month of Nisan. Abraham was called in the month of Nisan. I think he was born in the month of Nisan and so on. So all these things happen on the same date. So by that line of reasoning, they assumed that Jesus must have entered the world on the same day that he died. 
And in Jewish thought, you enter the world on the day you were conceived. So the Feast of the Annunciation was set to March 25th. Nine months, nine months later, you get December 25th. Yeah, so I, if I remember correctly, because we've talked about this before, Glenn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was believed that the prophets, when they died, uh, you know, in other words, the calculating the, the birth of a prophet would work in the same way that, right. you know, you'd kind of, you know, go, okay, this is when he left the world, subtract nine months. That's when he was born. <laughs> right. That's, that is, I've seen people who've argued that, and that seems to be the case, although there's some dispute on how accurate that is. Got you. Got you. So what we have then is a thoroughly Jewish, uh, kind of, uh, inner logic, whereas many of the people who accuse uh, Christians or church authorities uh, <laughs> of uh, designating the, the, the date as, as such as it is, uh, uh, explaining it as sort of a way for the early church to kind of compete uh, with, uh, you know, pagan obser- uh, you know, observances. Um, doesn't carry the the day the way people like would like to think it does. Right. And along with that, it's worth noting, like I said, that a lot of the things that were associated with pagan ceremonies were banned in the church in the early days. You would think that they would embrace those things if they were trying to compete head to head. In fact, Christmas was very much historically a, a very religious holiday that did not have the kind of, of, um, uh, craziness, parties, things like that, that, that we have today. Right. So it, it would have been a rather poor competitor if it was just competing <laughs> on that level. Right. This brings up another matter, and that has to do with um, the fact that, say, candles. You know, you noted that candles were something that would have been recognized as having a kind of pagan provenance at that time, uh, and they were banned for that reason. Now, I'm kind of glad we have candles now. Uh, mm-hmm. Does that make me a pagan? Uh, or does that just make me a person who says, you know what? There are only so many ways to produce light in this world. And if you want to have light in a service, you can either turn on the switch or you can have candles. <laughs> <laughs> or oil lamps. <laughs> All right. Or, or oil lamps. Well, but I guess, I, guess, I guess what I'm getting at is, is that, you know, we think about evergreens. I mean, evergreens do speak to uh, this mm-hmm. phenomenon that I think yeah. – reminds us of eternal life i is it wrong to use them for that because pagans also saw that i i kind of have an answer before maybe glenn will give a a kind of his his own take on it um but i think one of the things you see happening with christ's resurrection is basically and you see this worldwide and it's interesting i was just reading uh francis turiton earlier much earlier um Reform theologian, where he's talking about one of the significant aspects of the of Christ's impact on the world, and one of the things from the Old Testament that was promised about the true Messiah would be that basically he would eliminate um, the the reality of the demonic and the gods in this world from any kind of real as being a real source of power. To which you see already in the New Testament over issues of meat sacrifice to idols, where. Um, okay, for you, you're free to do it, but don't do it if you, there's a new Christian around who's going to be thrown off course because they just became delivered from those particular gods. And don't do it if, you know, if, it, if you have to participate in anything that's related to these gods. So the meat is fine because we know those gods don't exist. I mean, it's that kind of 
logic. How do we know? Because Christ alone is God, and he is the one who now, because of the resurrection, has dethroned all these principalities and powers. So when Christ and the gospel go into the world, at first they're confronting places where these principalities and powers are very entrenched. So they're tied to those things. But as the gospel begins to penetrate those things, look, the tree was created by God. It's sustained through God, and I would argue ultimately finds its perfection in God. The tree doesn't belong to the pagan. It has been distorted because of the principalities of power, but because Christ's resurrection, when it is brought into conformity to him, it therefore is in its right rightful setting. The same with candles and any other creaturely thing. So I think it's one of those kind of tensions that as long as it's still associated with sacrifice to idols or paganism, um, you, it hasn't weaned off of that, that context enough to be able to be seen in light of a fuller Christian vision. But as we develop that Christian vision and we start to show the continuities and wean it off of the discontinuities, I, I think it's like anything else. It belongs to Christ. Anyway, that's my take. Right. <laughs> no, I, I, think that's, I think that's great. Something you've, you've kind of introdu- you've introduced, though, that I'd like to think a little bit about it, maybe at some point, maybe not today, and maybe we've talked about it a little bit in the past, is I think when many modern interpreters of Scripture hear, uh, you know, you, Tom, talk about something like this or somebody else talk about meat sacrifice to idols, et cetera, their, their, their sort of thinking is that, okay, benighted people in the past really believed that there were these demonic powers who uh, were presenting themselves as gods. But we know today that it was just, a, you know, uh, in their heads. There was no real objective reality outside their heads. But uh, the problem is, is that um, it doesn't eliminate the possibility, that way of thinking uh, doesn't do justice to the possibility, I should say, that maybe there really were demonic powers that were at work and they were actually influencing the way people thought, but the gospel actually did liberate them. That, so there was an objective reality. That to, would be to, our, where I would them. go with it. That's where I would go with it. Right. I think that's that's what I right. mean by they're weaned off of of that, and now right. they're liberated, if you will. Anyway, I, I think right. we we uh, Glenn had a follow up on that. Yeah. Well, the, I was just going to use an analogy: um, prohibition. In America, Americans were known prior to Prohibition for being a nation of drunks. We had serious problems with alcoholism. True. Yeah. Which, which is why Prohibition picked up steam here. Because they were looking at the harm and the devastation that was caused by all, all of this excessive drinking. And so they, well, they hypercorrected by eliminating all of it. But the effect of Prohibition... You know, it was repealed because people said it didn't work. But in another sense, it really did, because it actually broke us of the habit of being a nation of alcoholics. So after Prohibition, the use of alcohol was nowhere nearly as problematic. Not all the problems go away, but it's nowhere near as problematic as it was before Prohibition. So in, in a similar sort of way, I mean, you can't take everything that pagans did and say as Christians, we can't do it. Pagans wore clothes. That's right. That's right. Okay? <laughs> they, you know, they, they, they used knives and axes and saws and tools and they made fires and they built houses. You know, I mean, 
and, and in a lot of cases, these things are things that were also connected to worship. Well, that's yeah, that so, what I was so, about to say. So, yeah. you, you, you know, the, the question isn't, did pagans use candles? Did the early church think this is bad? The question is, are you using candles because it's connected to paganism? <laughs> yeah. Or out of some sort of uh, attachment to paganism, and that's just frankly nonsense. You know, it just isn't there anymore. Yeah. So, 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 how do we how do we uh, speak to our fellow believers who sincerely believe that Christ uh, that Christ that Christmas uh, observing Christmas is somehow anti Christian? You know, okay. <laughs> that's kind of kind of where we are with some folks. Yeah, I think that there there are two ways of approaching this, well, actually three. One of them is the less, the weaker brother thing and just let them go their way, okay? The, the second is to try to educate them a bit about the origins of Christmas and things like that. We've got a couple more things that we've got to get to as we go along here, things like Christmas trees and stuff like that. Um, so that that would be a, a second approach to, like I said, to, to simply uh, try to educate them. But there, there's a third possibility here that we have to take into account. It's not so much that Christmas is pagan. It's the regulative principle. And nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to celebrate Jesus's birth, and therefore it's prohibited. You know, there are some there are some reformed guys who would go in that direction. Yeah, so this is a little bit of a uh, little inside baseball for folks right. who are not not reformed. Uh, what we're talking about here is there is a a a uh, sort of a uh, way of, of of approaching worship within reformed uh, circles that says unless something is explicitly commanded in Scripture uh, with regard to worship, uh, it is wrong to do it. Uh, so if, if, if say, for example, uh, you know, we have in scripture, uh, things like, you know, singing Psalms, uh, you do that, but it doesn't say, uh, in worship that, uh, you should turn around and shake other people's hands, you know, in the middle of church, you know, and you have that sometimes in, in some settings. So therefore you shouldn't do that Yeah, and uh, it's- because it's not explicitly stated that you do. Sim- in, I no, remember, my, yeah, I was going to say, I, re- I remember my favorite. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Glenn. You go first. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my favorite is people who insist that you have to sing everything a cappella and do that with Psalm 150. That's right. <laughs> because it's nowhere in the New Testament are yeah. musical instruments mentioned. Right. right. Yeah, and I remember um, uh, in, in one of the uh, churches I was attending in, in the South years ago where they were there was a revival preacher um, speaking one uh, Sunday in, in a little town in West Virginia, very close-knit town, and a big old car pulls up into the church lot to hear the revival speaker, and the people in the car saw a couple of guys out front having their smoke, and they kind of got out a little judgmentally and said, ah, you're not supposed to smoke, much less on Sunday. And they looked and said, not supposed to drive on Sunday round here either. <laughs> in other words, driving right. was a sin because it wasn't part. It wasn't. It wasn't put in scripture on worship day. You should drive. Um, right, so right, you, right. you really start to get when, with that kind of biblicism. I think you you really end up getting into some some quagmires. Um, it, uh, and I remember, it's not. It's not so. Mm-hmm, go ahead. It's not something that's exclusively a problem for for Christians. Uh, you know, when we think about our sort of more. 
uh, sort of orthodox or strict sex within Judaism, yeah. driving a car yeah. is something that uh, is prohibited yeah. because you're not supposed to light a fire on the Sabbath. Yeah. And what you have with, of course, the internal combustion engine is a fire. <laughs> yeah. And so, so there are lots of ways that you can kind of uh, police each other on these. In these yeah. yeah. So my, my answer to the, to the person who argues regulative principle on this is that nowhere is the Feast of Purim commanded in Scripture. It's described, but it's not commanded. Further, unless you accept the Apocrypha, which Protestants typically don't, <laughs> nowhere is Hanukkah mentioned in Scripture or commanded at all. And yet it's also known as the Feast of Dedication, and we know Jesus participated in it. Mm-hmm. So Jesus was not as tight on the regulative principle as, as the people who argue against Christmas. Well, then, uh, oh, okay, go on. Yeah, Tom. Well, there's, a, there's the biblical point. You hear over and over again in the New Testament, as was his custom, <laughs> as was his custom. So there are aspects to the customs of a society and a culture that were not um, disagreeable with and, and Jesus fully participated in that were not spelled out as things that were directly commanded or not commanded. And these were, this was tied to him uh, going to the temple and, and doing certain things as well. Um, and so, so there's that end of it. Um, but also I think it really, I, that kind of, of view, I understand what it's trying to do. It's trying to set a parameters from not letting things get into, you know, speculative things, get into the practices and worship of the church that are, um, that eclipse, you know, the, 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 the core things that are spelled out, the clear things that are, are spelled out or, or traditions that come in that have the same weight as those things that are, are commissioned or commanded. Right. Um, but I think it misses the whole, the whole theological vision that we're given in Christ as the Lord of all things and bringing all things into conformity to Christ. And therefore part of the cultural mandate to take these things back from the, from those gods that, that had them enslaved and liberate them to be part of, of, uh, of glorifying God rather than the flesh. I mean, I, I really think there, there is something there that is, is as central to the regulative principle of bringing all th- all things. Christ is here to fill all things. You know, as Glenn says, every square inch <laughs> that includes your candles and the lighter. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's not anything that does not have relevance to Christ's lordship. And so, why wouldn't we celebrate and commemorate the incarnation and use it as a time to talk about the 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 you know God becoming flesh to save? Um, humanity in its rebellion against him. I mean, I, I don't, I don't get, I just don't get it. <laughs> well, t- take, take a look again at the Old Testament precedent. What do you have? You have a series of feasts that are commanded in scripture that are done as commemorations of God's acts of deliverance, yeah. God's acts of redemption to the people of Israel. Yeah. You have them whenever God does something for them, set up a monument here. Pile up a pile of rocks so that when your kids ask what this pile of rocks about, you can tell them. Yeah. Then you get God without past the past the Torah, past the Pentateuch. You get God delivering the people at Purim. Yeah. You get God delivering the people at Hanukkah. 
And so festivals are set up around those, and Jesus is participating in them. What is God's greatest act of redemption? Well, it's it's the passion, yes, but that begins with the incarnation. Why wouldn't you commemorate those on the basis of the precedent that God himself has set in Scripture? Explicitly commanded? No, but we are to learn from the Scriptures how to worship. And I would argue that the regulative principle should allow for that. I think uh, kind of related to this uh, is, I think, uh, just a simple uh, reality, and that is nature hates a vacuum. If the Christian faith um, sort of bleaches the calendar, in other words, uh, sort of empties it of any uh, holiday, uh, holy day, uh, and says that the only holy day is, you know, one day in seven, and there is nothing else on the calendar. Well, something else will fill the gap. Uh, yeah. Super Bowl Sunday, uh, Indigenous July Fourth, Indigenous People's Day. That's right. So, it's, so there's going to be something that fills the gap. And um, since that's the case, uh, shouldn't we sanctify the calendar? Shouldn't we think about the calendar as something to occupy, something to uh, see yeah. Christ's dominion uh, expressed in? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now it's worth it's worth noting the Puritans banned the celebration of Christmas for two reasons. First of all, sort of in the inverse of what you're saying, Chris, they argued that since God commanded us to celebrate the Sabbath, that has to be the primary thing we do. But if we have an event, a, a holiday that only comes up once a year, people are inevitably going to consider it more special than the Sabbath that God has dedicated. Uh, that God has commanded. Um, now, interestingly enough, this isn't the line of reasoning Calvin uses. You know, Calvin recognizes the important dates through the, the, the church calendar, as does the Second Helvetic Confession. But the other part of it for the Puritans that people tend to ignore is that Christmas had become a seriously decadent celebration in the Puritans' day. And they were reacting to the excesses of the, the cultural at that point. So that's another component to it that that is worth at least considering for us. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that, that's a worthwhile matter to, to think about. And we have our own, um, you know, problems today with how Christmas is observed. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. that you know, but I think there is you know, there's a show for the topic of overcorrection, and I think that this this tends to happen over and over and over again. I think it's part of the flesh that just like legalism and and too much liberality are part parts of the flesh we tend to polarize those two in the church you know so um on the one hand we it becomes legalistic and then then basically you suffocate all those aspects of creation that you are are good gifts to participate in and and they're here for the glorification of god but then you open it up and say okay well we're not going to put any parameters around and it becomes nothing more than decadence and something so then you come back and you overcorrect and oh we're not going to associate with those sinners you know who you know celebrate christ by having too much to drink so we're gonna you know i mean there's this kind of back and forth going on when when i think that it doesn't have to go there i mean you can you can fully have a, a a recognition of the the vibrant significance of Christ and all he's about all the way down to all of the 
all of the ways of celebrating by decorating and feasting together and going to church together and worshiping and praying and, and the sharing of gifts in light of the gift that was given. I mean, all those things can be done without having to fall into those polarities of legalism or, or, or everything goes. We see that in different ways, you know, even generations, um, you know, when I was a kid, it was latchkey, you know, yeah, world, you <laughs> yeah. know, where parents were not around ever and you were just kind of, kind of completely free yeah. to do, do whatever. what you wanted. And there, <laughs> and there were problems with that. And yeah. then those people who grew up in those conditions became what? Helicopter parents yeah. who never give their children any space to ever take a risk. And now yeah. we're dealing with another problem, yeah. kind of like uh, kids who just have never encountered the real world. But I think uh, you know, kind of related also to all of this is the um, is just the uh, when we think about you know the celebration and we think about what goes on uh, in the course of the holiday season, uh, our 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 ability uh, as fallen creatures to lose sight of the purpose of things. There's always there's always a tendency, uh, you know, to to kind of get off point. You know, so, you know, Christmas becomes not the celebration of Christ's birth, but a time to get a bunch of stuff, <laughs> that kind of thing. And that's a legitimate concern. Sure. But does that mean you never give anybody a gift ever uh, because you don't want them, you know, to ever get the wrong idea? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, I think that's that kind of that, that, that kind of legal legalistic censuring that that um, that that enters into it. And, and I think the glorious freedom of the children of God, right, is such that the law of the spirit of life sets us free from that kind of thing. If you want to give cheerfully, give to the glory of Christ cheerfully, if you can and you want to. You don't have to. If you don't want to give anything, okay, <laughs> fine. You don't have to. Um, but the thing well, is, is we, also you won't you won't be attending you won't be attending Christmas morning at my house. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. But the, yeah. but the thing is, is uh-huh, go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, well, no, finish up what you're saying. Um, but, but the thing is, I mean, I think for Christians, it, it is a moment in which this is where what we can, th this is an opportunity to attest to, I think, the most profound thing that we have to say. Yes, redemption and Christ's work on the cross and bringing us into union with him is, is the big thing for us. But God becoming human as sheer gift to dwell amongst us and tabernacle with us. I mean, that's the greatest gift conceivable. It's the gift. Apart from the gift of, of, of being that we've been given in creation, the gift of new creation, I, I don't think this, I don't think, it's a missed opportunity maybe is what I would say. Um, this is a moment in which we really can um, pull the riches of what we have and, and that no human gift can compete with. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think we miss is, you know, we know that there are two accounts of Jesus's birth in Matthew and in Luke. Mark just picks up where his ministry starts. But I think that we sort of forget that uh, John has his own version of the nativity um, yeah. in the sense that what he's talking about is what it's not Jesus's coming as a human being. It's who Jesus is from all eternity. Yeah. culminating in a statement that left Augustine, among others, in absolute awe. And the word became flesh, flesh. and dwelt among us. That 
I, I, you know, we, we gloss over that so easily and we're so used to the idea of the incarnation that really what that means and the absolute wonder that is attached to that, we lose it. We just, we just don't, we just really do not appreciate all that that says. Yeah. 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 I think that it, it, um, was, um, more, I think, um, appreciated or maybe maybe the better way to put it is challenging uh in you know antiquity um i've been reading city of god augustine uh, and you know he's dealing with the platonists uh and he's doing a really i think uh good job or did a good job of trying to sort out the the wheat and the chaff with what they had to say and uh Things that he affirmed, uh, I don't know many people today who even sort of understand, uh, were things that people outside the Christian faith could affirm in the in the ancient world: uh, the, the the transcendence of God, His moral purity. These things were things that uh, reflective uh, people, uh, informed people in antiquity, already affirmed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What What was challenging for them was accepting uh, the possibility that we could have a relationship with such a God, yeah. that we could uh, uh, interact with such a God, because the idea would be or, or was that uh, his purity would kill us or our impurity would pollute him. And yeah. there was this, uh, this vast gulf uh, in the minds of many people. And, it, and, and there were proposals uh, for other kinds of mediation that could occur. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, the Christian affirmation that there is no other mediator between God and man beside Christ Jesus was aimed right at the heart of those other, you know, things. Yeah. And and when Christ uh, it takes on flesh, uh, the implication is that uh, material and visible reality is not somehow um, sort of morally suspect, which was something yeah. that people wondered about. Yeah. And some people felt strongly about uh, it was a, a tremendous endorsement of the, the 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 goodness of creation when Christ became flesh, when you know the Word of God became flesh. So this is something that I don't think you know. I I, I wonder if maybe in in our time it, we we don't have the opposite problem. Well, I think we I think that's that's the issue. I mean, I think that's why the scandal of incarnation. Um, it is is it doesn't it doesn't ring the same way. I mean, the, in that world, you're right. I mean, you're dealing with one who matter was considered lesser good um, or even evil, depending on on what philosophy you had in the ancient world. So to say God becomes flesh would have just insulted. You know, it would have been foolish to that world. Say, wait a minute, that in the only media mediator is want God uniting with the flesh and so that you already have the input from Christianity something radically different that that transcendence and God's imminence and presence um, can be united to the creation and it creation can be a fitting medium of uh, of of revealing the invisible um, radically alters the world so when we say Christian Platonism we're not talking Platonism we're talking a, a, a radical alteration of the visible and the invisible but then, then you have the you know the breaking down of the hierarchy of mediations. Christ now is the only mediator, right? I mean, there may be other other parts, other parts of creatures, secondary causes that that are gifted vehicles of bringing the good news. But Christ 
now is the only mediator in his resurrected bodily sitting at the right hand of the father. So we got scandal number two. But yeah, now we're on the opposite end. It, it, it is all the material. Um, it's the, the humanity of Christ, the history of Christ, Christ fighting for justice in this world that is the only significant Christ, not the transcendent one who is, is the, the final end and thus the most significant thing about all of the material and the creaturely. So, yeah, I think we, we yeah. the scandal now is the flip side, the divinity of Christ. Yeah, I think that's right. And it finds its way into, you know, seminaries and so forth. I remember, you know, you've heard this sort of thing uh, where, you know, there's a kind of it's the it's sort of the, the Greco uh, or sort of the the, 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 the sort of the, the, the Greco Roman outlook that needs to be dismissed. Purged. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the right. Harnack, oh, von, Harnack, von Harnack's thesis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and. You know, if we if we give any credence to that at all, we'll, we'll either become Gnostics or we'll um, sort of uh, lose touch with the, you know, the cause of social justice or whatever yeah. it is. You know. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I, I need to at least you know go back to this idea of the incarnation as as the word becoming flesh. Um, there, the the thing that I think really probably was the most difficult for them to grasp. And it's really something that I think, you know, as we've been just saying here, we don't really get is the idea that this human being, Jesus of Nazareth is at the same time of one being or one substance with the father who is the origin of all things and who is being in himself. Uh, the Greek word here, and this is something that we'll come back to, I, I suspect, in a minute, is homoousios, of, yeah. one, of the same substance. Yeah. So um, I, I'd just like to toss in you know, just a couple of final comments on the, the idea of paganism, because the next place that paganism shows up for us is in our celebrations. People will accuse our celebrations of mm -hmm. being fundamentally pagan. And the fact of the matter is that there are elements that are associated with Christmas that do have their origins in paganism. Yule logs, uh, the use of holly, ivy, mistletoe. Uh, but what's interesting about them is none of them are really central to Christmas celebrations. Um, the thing that is perhaps most central that people have accused of being pagan is a Christmas tree. Uh, but in point of fact, when you look at the history of Christmas trees, they really only show up about the late 1400s or early 1500s in Germany, hundreds of years after this area is converted from paganism. They actually have their origin, it appears, in medieval mystery plays where the so-called paradise tree or the, the tree that depicted the, the tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, um, or conversely, the tree of life in the garden, those things seem to have been adapted to become Christmas trees, which is why you would get apples or red balls hung on them, because the apple was a symbol of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Martin Luther and others are going to promote Christmas trees as a way of connecting Christ, it appears at least, connecting Christ as the new Adam mm. and the one who, um, who overcomes 
um, the the fail the 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 uh, failure in the garden to the point where I don't know how far back this goes, but there are Lutheran churches today that will take their Christmas tree, cut off the branches, and turn it in into the cross for Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was about. I, I was just thinking that. that. I was just thinking of that of the parallel for Easter. Um, so I guess I'll be I'll be hanging my paradise tree this weekend. <laughs> um, but uh, well, and, and and actually, by legend, by legend, the cross of Christ was the tree of life. Yeah, the tree of life was what was cut down and made to be the cross of Christ. Interesting. Yeah, you you have this legend. kind of imagery. I think you, you, it reconnects with Revelation, right? I mean, that with the tree and the le- in mm-hmm. and. Uh, and that a quick question yeah, on his history, Glenn. I, okay, so because I don't know the history of the Christmas tree, um, so you're talking about how significant it was with Luther's. So Lutherans were were putting it into pre- use prior to Catholicism. Yeah, um, there were there were some Catholic antecedents to this. As near as I can tell, the earliest ones were were sort of public trees that were put up in town squares and things like that. Lutherans were among the first who would bring them into houses. I don't Ah. remember off the top of my head if uh, there was some Catholic precedent for that. But Luther really loved Christmas trees. Um, And as a matter of fact, uh, according to uh, one account, uh, which I believe is a firsthand account, he was walking back from... Um, doing ministry somewhere and he was looking at the pine trees and the hills of Saxony and the stars above it and it was so beautiful he wanted to bring it into his house Hmm. so he brought the tree in and put candles on it to as, as a picture of the beauty of the stars over the pine trees in the area um so yeah. that that's connected in with this as well. There's a whole lot of different things that come together, but the point is they're not pagan. Yeah. Well, it, and, and what comes to my mind or occurs to me as I think about this is there really are only so many uh, candidates for significant uh, sort of natural objects. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we if we if we say okay, trees are out, <laughs> <laughs> we can't do trees. Holly is out. Yeah. Uh, anything green is out. <laughs> you know, what we do is we we constrict our our range of expression to a degree that is almost absurd, but also gets us back into the problem of the of the vacuum again. Yeah. Um, what we do is concede uh, all the best stuff in terms of natural sort of symbols to uh, non-Christian systems of belief or uh, pagan ways of thought. And we rip rip the kinds and and ends from their transcendent purposes. I mean, I think that's what we do. We we allow the fallen purposes to replace the transcendent purposes. So, I mean, a tree... And if... Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. If the world has meaning, if it's not just fact, if the world has meaning, where else are we going to go? I mean, aside from government programs, what are we going to use beside evergreens as a symbol of eternal life? <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and 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 what we're doing uh, as well uh, is demonstrating our sort of modern con- sort of uh, a belief that the only reason why anything has meaning is because we attribute it to it. We don't yeah. discover it. We impose yeah. it. So because right. the pagans have imposed 
their meaning on a tree. Yeah. That means that uh, the only way we can contend with them is by imposing our meaning on the tree or just kind of conceding to them, okay, you get the tree, we get the bush. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. It's kind of like what you would call the tyranny of the pagan meaning, right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so we that, that do we is, all have to kind of, as Christians, somehow be, be a trop, you know, tyrannized in, t- in this totalitarian meaning. I think, no, the pagan meaning is not the meaning of these things. Right. Christ yeah, is. We have, an in, we have an insight into uh, reality that our pagan neighbors do not. That's right. It's, it's because of Christ that we can see the real meaning of things. So uh, we can correct them. We can say to them something along the lines of, oh, you brought a tree into your house. That's marvelous. Do you know that it's not – a tree uh, is made by God – And it speaks to his glory and it says something about him. It doesn't say something about, you know, Odin or whatever you have sort of attributed to it. It says something about God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We have just a couple more minutes and I want to hit what I think to the uh, world around us is the primary symbol of Christmas. And that is Santa Claus. Yes. (laughs) All right. Okay. And, um, Uh, I, I'm just I'm just going to say here that um, Saint Nicholas was actually the bishop of a place called Mira in Asia Minor. Um, he was not a jolly fat man with a red suit and, and uh, well, he probably had a white beard. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he he was a theologian, and according to tradition, uh, he we're coming right back to the incarnation or the purpose of the incarnation. According to tradition, he was at the Council of Nicaea, which was the one that decided that what Scripture really teaches is that Jesus is God, that we've got a true incarnation of God made flesh. Uh, Now, his opponent there, um, on the opposite side, was a guy by the name of Arius. And Arius argued that Jesus was, in fact, the first created being, that there was a time when he didn't exist and so on. Well, my, my daughter um, actually <laughs> wrote a poem describing this whole event. And what you need to know is that, again, according to the legend, Arius uh, got uh, Nicholas so annoyed that he got up and slapped him at the council. I don't believe it really happened. But you mean, I mean, Saint Nicholas didn't punch a heretic. I, I, I kind of <laughs> wish it were. I kind of wish it was true. But the problem is, I don't think Arius was actually at the council, uh-huh. but because he wasn't a bishop, and there were only bishops at the council. But in any event, my daughter Elizabeth commemorated this in a poem called "A Visit from the Real Saint Nicholas." <laughs> Twas the night. Twas the night of the council, and all through Nicaea, they argued about an important idea. The emperor nestled and dozed in his chair while words of theology danced through the air. Is Jesus divine, was the question at stake. They had all settled down for a heated debate. For Arius said, if there's only one God, can Christ be God also? That seems rather odd. And Arius stated that there was a time when Jesus was not. Now this was a crime in the eyes of St. Nicholas, because he knew Jesus and God the Father were homoousius. I told you it would come back. Uh, the same in their substance, both without beginning. To say otherwise, St. Nick would call sinning. But Arius stubbornly wouldn't give way, no matter what Orthodox bishops might say. 
And up from his seat, Nick sprang with a start. And he said to Arius, you're not so smart. His eyes how they twinkled with fires of passion. He strode through the room in a most fearsome fashion. He moved like an arrow shot out of a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. Then there in the hall there arose such a slap that even the emperor woke from his nap. The bishops all gasped and Arius whined, and Nick was arrested, but he didn't mind, for the council's conclusion expressed in the creed was what he defended in word and in deed. <laughs> Soon the count... Soon the council was over, he had to go back and look for more heretics that he could smack. And they heard him exclaim as he rode out of sight, say the Christ isn't God and you're in for a fight. <laughs> well, that's probably a good way to end our show. That's well, that, that, I tried to time it that way. <laughs> well, that's great stuff, Glenn. And uh, thank your daughter for us. And uh, we thank you for listening to our uh, show today. Uh, the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your prayers and your gifts and uh, your notes. And remember, at the beginning of the show, I encouraged folks, was it, I think, in Brazil, to Brazil. reach out to us and let us know that you listen. You can go to uh, our website, theologypodcast.com, and uh, there's a contact page, and you can uh, address us uh, on that page and send us a note and we'll be sure to get it and uh, if we do get a note from you uh, we will mention uh, uh, in one of our podcasts that we got it and uh, so that's uh, that'll be re your reward about the only one we can give <laughs> but anyway thanks a lot for listening to the show today bye bye Merry Christmas Merry Christmas Merry Christmas <laughs>